Good morning. I don't even need to do another one. Perfect. That is wonderful. It does my soul good. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and one of the things that we did very well was there was always a good morning and then a response, and then there was always the guy that really went for it extra. You could always rely on that, but you guys are all there. Appreciate that. Uh, today, we are wrapping up this series, parable series that we've been in this whole summer, and it's been pretty rich. Uh, I would encourage you, if there are some weeks that you missed, I, I, I would encourage you to go back and listen. Uh, one of the easy ways to keep up with the teachings, if you're uh, gone, is to subscribe to our uh, podcast feed. We have a podcast feed of all of our teachings, so you can uh, click on that link on our website uh, under teachings. Uh, it could be an easy way to set that up. Um, Today, we're going to have a number of places that might be a little bit different. We're going to have a number of places we're going to pause and consider, okay? So if you have a piece of paper or a journal that you want to have out, could be really uh, strategic to have that out because we're going to have a number of spots where that could be really helpful to you. Uh, I think there's uh, extra paper and stuff in the back uh, and pens. You can also use your phone, click over to the notes app. That's fine too, just as long as uh, it's not Facebook or Instagram, or whatever is your go-to. If we see Pinterest, there's no way that connects. Sound good? So our goal uh, in our times together is not just that you would sing and that we would have a teaching that you would sit through and listen and say that's good, but then let it bounce for the rest of the week, but we wanna engage with God ourselves. We wanna be able to pause and consider ourselves. So that's our goal this morning, is to try to do that. Uh, Okay. Let's go ahead and jump right into our text. We're going to be in Luke 11, 5 through 13. Get my faithful clicker out here. And uh, the context of this, right before we jump in, is uh, Jesus has been talking to his disciples, and they just asked him, will you please teach us how to pray? And then he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. And uh, in the Matthew account, uh, he uh, adds another little phrase that I think is really helpful. And so in Matthew 6, 7 through 8, Jesus says, when you pray, don't babble on like the Gentiles, the non-Jews who don't know the God of the Bible. Don't babble on like them, since they imagine that they're going to be heard for their many words. Y'all don't need to be like them, because your Father knows the things that you need even before you ask Him. So he's trying to teach his disciples to talk to God naturally, like he's your loving Father. So no memorized, pre-scripted, wrote resuscitation prayers. Resuscitation? Recitation? Either. None of those kind of prayers. No superstitious, magical thinking where you think that you've got to get God's attention with your many words by praying the same thing over and over, some sort of holy words to get his attention, to get uh, get him to give you something. It would be really weird to talk to your dad like that, Right? Imagine sitting down with your dad and assume you have a good relationship, and what if you just kind of eyes roll back in the head a little bit and you just kind of launched into this pre, uh, pre-recorded, uh, pre-memorized thing that was really disconnected from your heart? It'd be super weird, right? The same as if you were sitting with a friend. It'd be really weird. So ironically, the Lord's Prayer is Jesus trying to teach his disciples not to pray like that, but to pray naturally like they were talking with their dad. But Tragically, a lot of uh, Christendom, a lot of people throughout the years have turned it into the opposite of what Jesus was teaching. They've turned it into a memorized thing that you say wrote over and over when you don't know what to say. So there's, there could be some value in having some memorized prayers, but that's not what he's talking about. The Lord's Prayer is not something to memorize so you can get it right. In fact, it's, a, uh, it's an example of how to talk to God as your Father. We're supposed to talk to Him intimately and freely. 
Like when you're walking around City Park and you've got a coffee in one hand, maybe it's hoodie weather, I'm really looking forward to that, coffee in one hand and your dad at your other side, or you're around a fire pit. It's a cool night, stars are up and you're talking with your mom or your best friend. That's what prayer should be like. Because prayer is not about recitation, it's about relationship. Prayer is not about recitation, but relationship. And that's what God wants with you, is relationship. So that's the intro, that's the context as we jump into our parable today. Sound good? That's what, uh, that's what you missed. That's the way that God wants you to pray. And how we pray is intimately connected with how we view God. So jumping into our parable today, again, we're in Luke 11, we'll start in verse five. He, Jesus, also said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine has come on a journey, uh, on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then his friend, his neighbor will answer from inside and actually he's gonna say, don't bother me. Door's already locked, my children, and I have already gone to bed. I can't get up and give you anything. So a little bit of cultural background here to help you understand. Hospitality was a giant thing in their culture, way more even than in our culture today. It was this giant honor-shame thing to be able to welcome guests when they come, not just for the individual, but for the entire community. So this was a big deal. And uh, there weren't a whole lot of inns back in the day. Uh, most of the time when people would travel, they would travel and then they would spend the night at extended family's house or strangers' houses that would be willing to take them in. That was uh, the normal way to travel and find lodging. And it would have been a big deal for this guy not to have some of his daily bread. They would cook in the morning, they'd cook the bread, bake the bread and have some uh, kind of small, about fist size, maybe a little bit larger loaves that would get him through the day. And so once those are gone, they're gone until the next day when you start the whole process again. There's no quickie mart, no Walmart, right? This is a big deal. Uh, uh, a couple more things. First of all, notice that his friend came to him at midnight. And so then the guy went and asked his neighbor after midnight. And so I think it's pretty common. Most of us, lots of us tend to stay up till around midnight. That was not common back then. Agrarian pre-industrial society, not a lot of electric lights, zero. And so once the sun went down, you pretty much started heading to bed. And so this would have been very, very late. And uh, as you might figure out from the passage, most of the homes in those days were just single room homes. And at night, they would spread out the, the sleeping mat and everyone would go to bed in the same bed, at the same mat. So... Uh, uh, and then they, you know, they would lock the door and they had this kind of large, heavy wooden beam or maybe a, a metal beam that would snap into place over the door and it did not open quickly or soundlessly. And as parents who have young kids have known, you don't want those kids to wake up, right? Especially if you're all in one big room, that, that sounds terrible. If, if your little kid wakes up, everyone wakes up, this is a disaster, nobody wants that. Uh, I, I have a vivid memory. Uh, Jen can correct me if my timeline is wrong, but we were in uh, Estes Park, because the mountains are the best, at the YMCA of the Rockies, and we got this pastor's deal. It was one room. We were all in one room. And I think we had three kids at the time. Is that right? Jen's like, maybe. We had three kids at the time. 
And, uh, and uh, I, we were all in one room, Jen and I were in one bed. We tried to get Ben and Sam to bed in the other bed and they would fight and they would fuss. And then we, had, I think we had Jack in the packing play in the same room and the bathroom was right there. And if someone gets up and goes to the bathroom, of course they slam the door and the baby wakes up again and then it starts over. I remember that being a very stressful situation. So I kind of get the neighbor, but they're friends and they're neighbors. It was really weird that he said no. What's Jesus trying to teach us? Keeps on. Jesus says, I tell you, now we're talking to the people. Jesus is talking to the people listening. I tell you, even though he wouldn't get up and give him anything based on their friendship, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, the word here is the only word used in this way in the New Testament. It's, it's uh, awkward, blunt, even like culturally insensitive, shameless asking. Because of that kind of asking, eventually his friend's gonna get up and get him what he needs, right? Kids are gonna wake up, he's gonna give him what he needs. And so if we pause right here, and a lot of times with Jesus's parables, we can enter a point of confusion. Especially for us that are separated by 2,000 years from those people and that culture, sometimes if we just do a surface reading, it can seem really confusing and we can get the wrong idea. It kinda sounds like that Jesus is saying we should pray like this guy and that God is like the friend, right? Doesn't it kind of seem like that? God is reluctant. He doesn't actually want to be bothered and you really got to get his attention. So you need to keep pestering, keep pestering and eventually God will get, uh, get you what you need. But that's actually quite the opposite of what Jesus is saying as we'll see. So I want you to just kind of keep that in mind. And Jesus finishes out the parable and the explanation He says, Jesus turns to the people and he says, I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door is going to be open to you. For, just in case you didn't get it, he's going to repeat himself, for everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks will find. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And here's why. Why? What father among you if his son asks for a fish to eat, are you going to give him a snake instead? No. What if he asks you for an egg? Are you going to give him a scorpion? No, of course not. And here's the kicker. Jesus says, if then you all, who are evil, don't you love how Jesus just so carelessly and gently and freely just says, yeah, you know, you guys, are evil. If y'all even know how to give good gifts to your kids when they ask, and here is the most important phrase in the whole thing. If I can find it, there we go. How much more? How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more? So the how much more is the thing here. So uh, it's an a fortiori argument. We don't use those as much these days. Jesus, ancient rabbinical teaching, used this a lot. We're pretty used to analogies like if this thing does this thing, then this similar thing should do this similar thing, right? The more similar they are, the more powerful the argument, the more powerful the comparison. That's what we're used to. But this one is pretty much the opposite. It says, if this thing that is small and low and broken does this thing, How much more this greater thing that is actually very different should also do this thing and even more? That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is emphasizing how different 
he is in this neighborhood. How much more will your heavenly Father give you good things? So the the here is in italics because in the original language, the word the isn't there. There's no definite article. And so when translators make a translation, we've talked a little bit about translations here, and they have to make a choice. And so uh, if you don't have the in English, it sounds really clunky, right? How much more will your Father give Holy Spirit to those who ask? So they put the the in. But a little bit of biblical study, I think this one makes this one a not preferable translation because throughout the, the scriptures, when the word the is in front of Holy Spirit, it tends to denote the person of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity of the Godhead. But without the the, it's talking about the provision and the power that God's Spirit offers. And I think that makes the most sense here. We're not asking God to give us the Holy Spirit. We're asking him to give us the power and provision of his Spirit in the real situations of our life. Because, and I want you guys to get this, God is not like the grouchy neighbor. He's going to answer you quickly because he loves you and he's your father and you don't have to convince him. How much more? And so you're invited to bring the real you to the real him. When you pray, be like the guy in that you ask exactly what you're thinking about. Ask whatever you want shamelessly, brazenly, unfilteredly ask God for what you want. He knows how to filter your requests and he's really good and he longs to give you good things. My son Sam is kind of like this. He's our third son. Nope, second son. <laughs> he's one of them. And, uh, and he asks for anything all the time, always, and he will ask on repeat. And so sometimes it's annoying, but it's actually fairly incredible to me. So, uh, Dad, can I have another cookie? No. Dad, can I please have another cookie? No. Dad, you told me I could have another cookie. This is like daily, like repeats seven or eight more times. And this one actually happened. Dad, when can I get that gold PlayStation? What? I actually had to look this up. This is a real thing. There is a gold-plated PlayStation 5 that you can buy from a shop in England. I don't know how he heard about this. 24 karat gold, and it costs about $12,000. No, you cannot have that. It's at least a not yet. But more often than not, I get to say yes. Sure, you can have another snack. Sure, I can take a little break and play Legos with you. Sure, we can do up on neck, top and neck, where I pick them up, put them on my head, and you can twist my head and uh, give my chiropractor, uh, you know, everything that he's longed for. <laughs> and I'll go that direction. Yes, I can help you. And I love it when he asks me. Sometimes I'm annoyed. But in general, I love it when he asks because we've got a relationship and I love it when I get to say yes. I love it that he still comes to me. That's what God wants you to be like with him. Is that what you're like with him? Is that what it's like with him? If you're like most people, it's actually not usually. It's actually kind of difficult to be like that with God. By default, we tend to bring skewed ideas about God. We see him actually like the grouchy neighbor, the guy who isn't that interested and that you gotta convince to help you. And who helps you reluctantly? We see him like the unjust judge that Josh talked about. I think it was the very first teaching where he did this how much more thing where the unjust judge eventually gave this old woman justice because she kept pestering him, even though he didn't care. And then Jesus says, how much more will, you, will your heavenly father give you justice when you ask? 
But sometimes we see him as an unjust judge. So we got, we got to convince to give us what's right. Or we can go the other way and see God as this overly permissive parent that just cares about us being happy and wants to give us whatever we want, whatever we ask for, unfiltered. He just wants us to be happy. See, we tend to put other people's faces on God. Right? This may not be a revolutionary idea. We tend to put other people's faces on God, especially our fathers or father figures. We're major caregivers. We put other people's faces on God so that our experiences that we have in our life shape how we view God. So uh, all children come into the world unconsciously asking, am I loved? And what do I need to do to be seen and enjoyed? I mean, they don't know they're asking that, but that's what every child unconsciously comes into the world asking, and they discover the answer based on their home life. And it's hard uh, it's hard to overstate how powerful that is. That stuff gets you know, locked in pretty much by the age of five, their worldview, the answers to those questions. So it's hard to overstate how powerful it is, uh, how powerful the reality, the experience of our home life, our experience with our fathers, our caregivers, how powerful that is in shaping how we view God. And so we need to understand, we need to understand the masks that we tend to put on God so that we can move forward, so that we can begin to understand how to take off the mask to set it down and engage with God as he really is. And that's what we're going to look at today. So before we look more into, uh, into those ways that we can kind of put a mask on God, I want to do a pause and reflect. This is our first pause and reflect, and I'm going to give you maybe slightly more than you would consider amount of time here. Thinking back on your childhood, what did you need to do? What did I need to do to be seen, loved, and enjoyed my family of origin. Extra credit if you write it down. What did you need to do to be seen, loved, and enjoyed? What were some specific places or times or things that you did where you really felt like, oh yeah, I'm being seen? We all have them. All right, kind of keep that in your mind as we uh, dive into a little bit more details about how, the homes we grew up in and where we can tend to get God skewed. And as we start to look at these four main types, excuse me, that I've taken uh, I, all, very largely uh, uh, gleaned from a seminary uh, class that I took way back in the day called Geography of the Soul. And for some who uh, were a part of uh, our church and uh, the church we planted out of years ago, there, were, there was even a seminar that we did. That, so some of this might seem familiar if there's any who are from the way back. All right. But as we start, I want to start with a disclaimer. Looking at the styles of uh, parenting that we experienced growing up is not about blaming our parents. All of us grew up in families that were imperfect. No one grew up with perfect parents, right? Everyone, for the most part, was doing their best with what they had and what they had been given. None of us grew up with perfect parents. And for those who become parents themselves, you are going to mess up your kids. I know I am can't really get away from it. You can sure do things to minimize or help the damage there. Help the damage? You know what I mean. 
but we didn't, no one grew up in perfect homes. So we're not talking about blaming. We're trying to understand so that we can understand how to take down the masks we put on God and relate to him directly. So as we go through these, I again encourage you, pay attention to anything that feels like it connects because that usually means there's something there. All right, we're gonna look at these quadrants, the parenting styles quadrants. And there's a continuum here. So uh, the top, uh, the, the columns are kind of go from a managed type of home to a chaotic type of home. Home life felt kind of managed versus things were fairly chaotic. And on the, uh, the other uh, axis, and again, this is a continuum, the messages that we tended to get from our parents were, I just want you to be good or I, want, I just really want you to be happy. And the I want you to be good uh, could also be, at the end of the day, you don't really matter. I, as a parent, matter. You exist to make me look good. So at the end of the day, I just want you to be good because you don't really matter that much. And it's the opposite with the other one. Uh, if the parents say, I just want you to be happy, it ultimately means I, as the parent, I, I don't really matter that much. You're really the one that matters. All right, so let's look. First one, performance style, the performance-based home. Here's kind of what it might have looked like. So parents indirectly convey to their kids, you don't matter, you exist to make me look good, so you should be good. Home life is very managed. Parents set the standard for what's accepted, and they're gonna enforce it, right? There's a high value on if things are right or wrong, high value on good and bad. You're enjoyed and seen when you perform, when you achieve, when you get the good grades, when you obey, when you succeed at sports, you get the idea. The main goal for mom and dad is essentially we need to look tidy in public. We need to look good to others. Image-based, pretty high value there. So when they come to church, all of them are smiling, they're put together, they've got their decent clothes on, and when they sit down, the kids are well-behaved and polite. At school, these are the kids that are the same thing. They're really very polite and well-behaved, and they sit quietly with the hands folded in their lap. Again, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. Uh, the pictures on the family mantle, right? Let's imagine the pictures that this family would take. They would all be very high quality. Everyone would be smiling perfectly, Everyone looks like they're loving each other. Everything is perfect. And they're wearing uh, color-coordinated matching clothes, right? Everything is perfectly coordinated. Maybe they're all in K-State garb or something a little bit more high class. Uh, I land here a little bit. I don't resonate with all of this, but I grew up as a pastor's kid. And so I think I felt some, whether directly or indirectly, pressure to be good, to do the right thing. And that especially when I'm in public, you know, there's a lot of expectations on me. have set a good example. I resonate with this a little bit. Kids who grow up in this type of home tend to grow up kind of bound. They feel bound. Controlled by anger and dependence. Tend to have a low sense of self-worth, self-confidence, because at the end of the day, I don't really matter. Hurts and disappointments are shoved under the rug, but they don't go away. So they can be defensive, obsess over offenses. They can sure be perfectionists, right? A lot of perfectionists, but they live with a perpetual sense of failure, right? Because you can't live perfect and life isn't perfect. And the messaging is really, I've got to somehow do it right. And if I don't, I feel bad about myself. And that's a fairly constant state of living. And there's such high pressure for everyone to always look good and put together. Sometimes these kids will smile even when they're upset, when they're crying or they're angry, they'll smile. And even as adults, they'll smile 
when they're crying or upset. Lots of girls, young girls that grow up in these homes tend to take on fairly significant eating disorders as a way to cope. A lot of high pressure. And these folks tend to think of God as angry at them. Doesn't that make sense? God is angry with them. Uncaring, harsh, eager to punish, only concerned with their performance and obedience. God is angry. All right, let's move on to the distant style. See if you can resonate with anything here. Kids in this home tend to grow up with a message from their parents that you don't matter, you need to be good, but everything is a lot more chaotic. Parents are more distant. They're pursuing their own careers, their own passions, their own stuff. And so children are often lost in the mix, trying to find their way through life. Parents are often overwhelmed, too overwhelmed to deal with the problems of raising their kids, the problems with their kids' emotional stuff. So uh, there's very little emotional connection. Emotions are often neglected. Uh, Parents are emotionally distant, physically present, but their heart's kind of distant. There might be a lot of uh, fast food ordering, pizza for dinner, last minute, because parents just can't manage. Um, There's a lot of screens for kids to just manage the time. And in this home, secret addiction tends to rule. It's not overt, but secret addiction is pretty powerful. Kids in these uh, distant parent type uh, type of homes often grow up feeling like they need to be a trophy. They live for recognition, the kind they didn't really get from their parents. They allow their identity to be shaped by external things, labels. Others exist to make them look good. Relationships are really there to serve me. There's a lot of name dropping, perhaps, to kind of puff themselves up by association. They can put a lot of value on their physical appearance, their social status, likes on Instagram. Like the bound type, They also live dependent on others, but instead of living out of anger, they live out of a denial type of life. I'm gonna live in denial from the painful realities of life. And these folks tend to treat God as distant and detached. God wears a mask that says, I'm uninterested in your personal life. Your own desires, dreams, and feelings, I'm actually not that interested in. Yeah, I'm there for emergencies if you really need me, but you're gonna have to get my attention, right? At the end of the day, I'm just not in that into you. God is just not that into you. Let's keep moving on. Oh, child-centered style. Uh, you could also call this the Disneyland style or the soccer mom style. Parents communicate, ultimately, I don't matter. I exist to make you happy. You're the only one that matters. And so it's highly managed because parents feel like it's up to them to make sure their kids are happy. There's a lot of pressure there. And so kids usually get what they want or what they think they want. The kid throws a tantrum in the store and the parents immediately buy them that toy that they have in their hand or that candy bar they wanted. Do kids still want candy bars? Maybe. I don't know. Kids want what? They want Sprite? Surprises, that makes so much more sense. I mean, Sprite, maybe. Right? The emphasis is on fun but it keeps things at the surface. Problems aren't really dealt with. Um, Homes tend to fill kids' needs with things rather than emotional and relational connection. And parents usually end up exhausted because they don't feel like that they can take care of themselves. Often kids who grow up in the performance-style homes flip and become child-centered type of parents as a reaction. And kids that grow up in these child-centered types of homes grow up feeling somewhat haunted They're controlled by anger and independence. 
Kids feel afraid because they feel like they're too big. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that have to drive everything. They're the ones that have to satisfy themselves. When a child grows up without any boundaries, they feel really insecure, right? Because if you don't know where the edges of the crib is, you don't know where you're safe. And it's actually a very insecure way to live. Um, the kids feel pressure to be really happy, but there's this nagging sense that they're not because experiences never really match up to meet their inner need for happiness because the world actually ends up not existing to make you happy. It does not work well. And so uh, they tend up feeling haunted because they feel hollow. These kids know that their inside reality doesn't match their outside reality, and they're haunted by this deep disappointment, pain, anger, and shame. And so they think, don't get too close. They keep relationships at a distance. Don't get too close or I'll scare you away. Don't get too close. They can be aloof and unapproachable, maybe like Ebenezer Scrooge. But there's also a version called the Casper the Friendly Ghost style. This type of ghost controls everything with humor. I think this is the style that I really picked a lot through high school and college, maybe even a little beyond. At the end of the day, if things are getting a little bit too deep, we're gonna pop things back up with humor. And it's actually a fairly popular way to do things. You're funny, people like you. You, you uh, tend to be invited to the parties, but at the end of the day, it communicates, I don't matter, you don't matter, so let's just keep it light. And these folks tend to think that God is my personal genie, gives me whatever I want, but ultimately, it never really works. God doesn't come through, and so, God, they think that God either is angry with them or disappointed with them or that God doesn't care, right? At the end of the day, there must be something wrong with me or maybe something wrong with God. If you really knew the real me, you think, in front of God, if you really knew the real me, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. So just like my other relationships, I'm gonna keep God at a distance and he stays there. God is distant. All right, last one. This is also fun, isn't it? But I think it can be really helpful because we all land somewhere in here. The last one is the aholic style of home, the, addict, the home where addiction rules. The message here from the parents is, I don't matter, and you should be happy, but things are chaos. I'm just trying to cope as a parent, and at the end of the day, uh, we, I live in my addictions, right? I'm overwhelmed because I don't feel like I matter, and so I live with a lack of self-care, and I just you know, cope through addiction. So it could be workaholism, alcoholism, rageaholic, sexaholic, whatever the aholic is, I cope through my addictions. And there's a big swing. Family life is so chaotic. There's a swing between things are okay, things are not okay. Uh, there can often be some really bad stuff that happens when they're in the midst of their addictions and then they feel remorse and then we swing way over here and we try to do this really happy thing or this fun thing or I buy my kids this big toy Kids swing from being neglected to being lavished, and it's super confusing for the kids. No real boundaries or privacy, and so kids live to try to make their parents happy, and they have to grow up really quickly because they have to take care of their parents, even though their parents think that they just want them to be happy. Kids end up having to become enablers of their parents. They take the consequences for their parents' actions. That's what an enabler is. You take the consequences for someone else's bad behavior, Kids grow up being enablers for their parents and often grow up to move into their own addictive lifestyle because that's all they've known. Or they marry someone in an addictive lifestyle. It's really common. 
trying to make life work. Kids in this home, they grow up feeling like they need to be invisible. Compliant, nice, but pretty vacant because my own needs ultimately don't matter. And at the end of the day, I need to make life work by making you happy. I need to take care of you. And my needs are just totally pushed under the rug. They won't tell you their preference on anything. Where do you want to go to dinner? They will never tell you, right? Um, They live to take care of others as a way to make life work, but they won't take care of themselves. And they can be some of the most faithful servants at church, right? You can never give to them even though they're always giving to others. So uh, maybe they go to the hospital or they get sick and there's a meal train. You bake them a casserole and take it over. The very next day, this type of person will bring the casserole dish right back filled with a new casserole for you, right? (laughs) These folks tend to see God as unpredictable, unsafe, powerful, but not good. He doesn't actually care about my needs. And at the end of the day, I just have to take care of others. That's all he wants from me. I just need to be a servant. And so there's very little intimacy. And there's very little foundation of trust. So that's a lot. But my guess is you can find yourself somewhere in here. All of us do. And lots of times there's elements of a number of them that you can kind of relate with. Sometimes one parent is kind of here and then the other one compensates by being over here. You may not be way over. So even in the best homes, there tend to be things that you kind of, the, the family style, the parenting styles tend to kind of shift towards a little bit, pushes towards this type of unhealth when it goes there. So we're gonna do another pause and consider here as we kind of come and round the bases here. Pause and consider. What parenting style did I grow up with? Where would you put yourself in the quadrants? Take a second. What feels maybe like it's the most connecting? Pause and consider. Next question, based on that, even if it's just in theory, what kind of mask might you tend to put on God? Maybe based on your own experience, you already know the answer. Or maybe you need to base it on, at least like the, or theoretically, what might be true? What type of mask? What might be the mask that you would tend to put on God? What do you really think by default that God's like? What does he want from you? Remember, there's no wrong answers here. The right answer, church answer, is the wrong answer. You can go ahead and keep writing. So our upbringings, our father figures, they really do have a big impact on how we tend to view God. And it tends to be the most powerful when it's the most unconscious to us. 
But these things, the masks that we tend to hold, that we've developed and that we tend to put on God, they don't have to have the last word. Those don't have to have the last word in your life. There's no story so tragic, no wound so severe, no sin so shameful that you're beyond the reach of God coming close, of him loving you like the father he wants to be. There's no mask that's so stubborn that it won't come off. In fact, the truest thing about you, if you choose to follow Christ, if you choose to entrust yourself to him, there's no, or the truest thing about you is no longer your brokenness, no longer the experiences you've had, no longer your father wounds, your daddy issues, the things that had been done to you. The truest thing about you is your redemption in Christ and the fact that he loves you. That's the gospel. In the book of John, chapter one, talking about Jesus, Verse 10, he says, he was in the world. It's not up on the screen. But Jesus, he said, he was in the world. He came into the world. He had made the world, and yet the world didn't recognize him. Couldn't really see him for who he was. Jesus is used to being uh, misunderstood and not seen correctly. He even came to his own, and his own people did not recognize him, didn't see him correctly. But to all who did choose to receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, to all who believe in his name who became born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of a man, but the will of God. He can be reborn as his child. God is a good, good father. Even if you don't feel like it, even if you had a fairly crappy dad or a distant dad or a difficult mom or a leader in your life that took that place, no matter what, God wants to bring you close. He has the ability and the desire to help you to heal and to interface with him as he really is and to help you experience him as a good father so that you can relate directly to him, so that you can bring the real you to the real him in prayer. That's the whole thing. He wants to relate to you. There has to be communication, but the the mask is gonna have to start coming down. You're gonna have to take apart the mask so that you can actually develop a relationship. Otherwise, it becomes a mirror and it just bounces back. You can't really relate to the real him. The Christian life could be aptly described as being reparented by God. That's the Christian life, being willing to be slowly and over time reparented so that you can have him be your good father, the one you always longed for and the one you need. And so I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up and we're gonna have a couple more times of pause and reflect, but a little bit of background music can be helpful so it's not just real quiet, right? Today, are you willing to let God come and reparent you and show you his goodness to help you remove that mask and relate to the real him? So the application today is first and foremost to pray. Try prayer based on what you've learned. Practice that bold, reckless, unfiltered asking. Use all the words. Don't be abstract. Use all the words. My prayer life and my relationship with God has hinged and turned on my willingness, my risk to actually say all the things that I'm thinking and feeling unfiltered to him. Felt really risky at the beginning, but now I actually feel like I can have a relationship because that's where relationships flourish. So I'm gonna encourage you as you pray, pray based on maybe some of the uh, experiences that you've had, the, the, the masks you tend to put on God. So if, you're, if you tend to relate with the bound type of 
experience. Tell God your anger, totally and completely unfiltered. Tell God where you're scared and hurt and offended and hopeless. So you might pray something like, God, I'm hurt and angry even at you. Show me how I'm actually safe in your arms. For those who relate to being a trophy, show up in prayer without your makeup on, without any of your credentials. And you might pray, God, only you can give me a secure identity. Come close, tell me who I am. Those who are haunted, tell God your anger and your fear and your secrets. Try to scare him away and give him the chance not to run. So pray, God, I'm afraid that if you knew the real me, you would not want me. So many of us feel like that. But I'm so lonely and tired. Search me and really know me all the way. If you feel invisible, tell God something real about how you're feeling. Begin to have opinions and share them with him. And don't try to fix it. Don't try to make it the right answer. Let him be the good father that knows how to answer you well. So for God, it's so hard for me to bring my full self to you. Help me to recognize my needs and then please, will you actually meet my needs? So take a moment and pray. for step. I'd also encourage you to tell someone else, tell a friend or a spouse, some of the stuff that felt connecting today. Beginning to open up more with other people is another part, key part of being willing to be reparented because God often reparents us in community. And so uh, a great next step could also be to jump into a small group, to let yourself be known a little bit more and to risk knowing others. They're, the groups are back here and also on our website starting soon. I'd also encourage you to speak to a pastor, Ben, me, Josh, maybe the person who brought you, maybe to speak to a counselor to figure out what is, how can I lean more deeply into some of these difficult things and take a next step? God's all about that stuff. Just a little plug here, if you're interested in taking a next step with your sexual health and sexual healing, specifically men, there's, we're starting another round of our seven pillars of freedom for men groups here in the fall, so come talk to me. Uh, about that, you can email me also at davegeldart at tallgrassatthewell.church. So we're gonna end with one more time of pause and reflect, and then we'll go ahead and enter into a time of worship. Just take a minute or two. Do you sense God saying anything to you? I'm gonna ask you to listen. And then is there something you'd like to say back to him? Take a moment and sit with that. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.